Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hi Islanders, tonight I bring you a case from the late 80s about a serial killer that was caught just by chance. But the fact that he was on the streets at all is going to bring on the rage. Now references are from the Democrat and Chronicle, the Pittsburgh Press and a book, Arthur Shawcross, The Genesee River Killer by John... My Dr. Joel Norris. Okay, I hope you're all doing well. Last week's show about the failed Millennium Dome robbery was a good break from the usual, and I do have another heist coming up. But tonight we go to Rochester, Monroe County, New York, and the terrible crimes of Arthur Shawcross, the Genesee River Killer. Now, just a small trigger warning here. This series of events happened 30-odd years ago, and the term prostitute was used by the media and law enforcement. So you will hear it hear from me tonight, so please don't burn me, because sometimes the word needs to be used in the context of the time. It shows how these women were seen at the time and why sometimes their deaths weren't taken as seriously as they should have. Now... It's in Rochester that a series of murders would occur with the bodies being found in most cases around the Genesee River which flows straight through the middle of Rochester into Lake Ontario. Now on the 18th of March 1988, 27-year-old Dorothy or Dotsy Blackburn would go missing and her body would be found six days later floating face down in Salmon Creek in Northampton Park in the town of Sweden. She'd been strangled. Dotsie had grown up in the J Street area, Rochester, attending Jefferson High School. Although she had liked a party, her school friend said she wasn't heavily into drugs while at school and that she was just a regular person. She had two school-age kids with a former husband and a baby with a more recent boyfriend. She had two charges in 1985 for loitering for the purpose of prostitution and a charge of disorderly conduct. Her brother-in-law said she'd been trying to get off the street. Now, maybe because she was the first in a series of murders or maybe because she walked the streets for money that there isn't much to read about Dotsie at the time of her death. Then on September the 11th, 1988, the badly decomposed body of 28-year-old Anna Marie Steffen was found on the banks of the Genesee River at the Driving Park Bridge by a man looking for bottles. She'd been missing since the 9th of July. She was found under a pile of roofing shingles with a a rock placed on her hair and it seemed to have been put there to keep her hair outstretched. Her face had to be reconstructed for identification purposes and it would be her father that would have the awful job of doing this. He'd noticed the published photo of the reconstructed face and thought it looked like his missing daughter. Anna was a 1979 graduate of Naples Central School and had spent 15 years looking after her younger sister, Tina Louise, who'd been born with spina bifida and died in 1980. Now, Anna's younger half-sister, Chris, said that she had a heart of gold 
and would get jobs when she was young just to help take care of the family. But when her sister died, she changed. She had a husband and two kids but left them and became dependent on drugs. Chris said she once ran into Anna in a drugged-up haze. She was skinny and run down. The girl that had spent her life helping others could hardly look after herself now. Now, police described her as a prostitute, but she had no convictions. Police had picked her up from the street eight months pregnant on July the 8th, 1988, wearing a bright-coloured maternity dress. They took her to hospital in premature labour. She went missing the next day after giving birth. She was found wearing jeans and a T-shirt. The fate of her baby was unknown. It would be just over a year when the headless skeletal remains of 59-year-old Dorothy Keeler was found on the 21st of October 1989. She'd been missing since the 29th of July. She was found on Seth Green Island on the Genesee River and had been killed by a strike from a blunt instrument. She was a drifter and a friend said she didn't go with men. She had no use for them. However, she did drink a lot and was homeless. She wasn't noticed missing by those that knew her in town as they had all thought she'd gone back to Syracuse as she'd always said she would do. In fact, she wouldn't be linked to this series of crimes because of her age and the fact she wasn't a sex worker until this Arthur Shawcross confessed. He also told police he went back to her body, grabbed her skull and threw it in the river. Then, just six days later, on the 27th of October, 89, the body of 25-year-old Patricia, or Patty Ives, who'd been missing since September 29, was discovered just behind the Maplewood YMCA on Driving Park Avenue, just walking distance from where Anna Marie Stephan and Dorothy Keeler were found. Now, Patty had been raised in the Lyle Avenue area of Rochester and decided to stay there when her family moved to Livingston County in 1981 when she was just 16 years old. At 20, she married John Ives, who ended up in jail on drug charges and the marriage ended. Now, Patty had been into drugs while attending Jefferson High School where she dropped out at 16. She liked to write and she liked to read books. But drugs got the better of her and no matter how many rehabilitation programs she tried, she just couldn't kick the habit. At 23, she had a baby out of wedlock. Even though she loved her son, she couldn't take care of him and he was fostered out. In 1982, she had a disorderly conduct charge. In 1989, she was convicted three times for prostitution. She did a total of three months in jail for all those offences and she got just got out days before she was brutally murdered. Now you can sort of see a bit of a pattern here. Very vulnerable women with drug issues or other issues that put them on the edge of society being preyed upon by an evil that lurked in the shadows. So that's four women in just 18 months found brutally murdered. None of them really make the news until this all starts to come to a head. The police are starting to freak out a bit as the community start to find out about a potential serial killer living amongst them. But many of those in the community and the police have this attitude that they got what they deserved, they were just drug-addicted prostitutes. Now, I guess that's true in a sense, 
but they were daughters, sisters and mothers. They had problems that they couldn't cope with that led them to the streets. They certainly didn't deserve to be brutally murdered. And the body count wouldn't stop at four. Now I'll get to the other women, but now maybe's the time to introduce the evil that was picking up these women and murdering them. Arthur John Shawcross, born June the 6th, 1945 in Kittery, Maine. He was in his mid-40s when he went on his murderous way through the seedy side of Rochester. And when you find out how he came to be there, it will give you the rage as he should never have been released for the crimes he had committed just 15 years before. Shawcross, when young, moved with his family to Watertown. And although he was tested as low intelligence, he still got good grades at school. He says that he was sexually abused by his mother and aunt from the age of eight years old. But this claim's been denied by his mother. He was a bit of a bully at school and dropped out at 16 years. He was six foot tall and very strong in the upper body. He was married young and had a son, but divorced soon after and never saw his son again. In 1967, he was drafted into the army and he's actually given interviews telling of his fighting days in Nam, where he was a weapons specialist and would hide in the jungle for days waiting for Viet Cong soldiers to pass by. In one story, he saw a female Viet Cong soldier approaching and he waited for her to pass. And then he came up behind her and hit her with a machete. He then cut off parts of her body, which he would cook with C4, and then he'd get information out of her. He would then cut off her head and nail it to a tree to warn other Viet Cong in the area. Now, in reality, he was a desk clerk and didn't see any active duty. On return to the States and his tour of Nam, he married again, but this didn't last as she was freaked out about his fetish for lighting fires. Now, he was also committing arson and burglary offences. He would only do just under two years of a five-year sentence for his crime and on release, he went back to Watertown in late 1971 where he would marry again. Now that's wife number three. In May of 1972, Shawcross lured 10-year-old Jack Owen Blake into the bushes at Watertown. He would rape and kill him. On September the 2nd, 1972, with Jack Blake still missing, Shawcross raped and killed eight-year-old Karen Ann Hill, whose body was found that night under a pile of debris under a bridge, just minutes walk from where she'd been abducted. The next day, Shawcross was arrested, and two days after that, Jack Blake's body would also be found. Now, Shawcross would confess, and you would think, an open and shut case, locked up and the key thrown away. But no, he was able to do a plea bargain. What the hell there is to plea about? Now, the police, they reckon they had no real direct evidence against him for Jack Blake's rape and murder, and it was it was thought Shawcross was going to pull an insanity plea. So Shawcross admitted to raping and killing Karen Hill as long as he was charged with manslaughter only. He also had the Jack Blake killing added to that charge after confessing to killing him. Now, he was found guilty and the community were outraged that his charges were reduced from murder to manslaughter. Now, murder would have gotten him life without parole, but this crazy plea deal got him 25 years. 
and he got out in April of 1987 after serving only 15 years. Now, after moving to several cities where the community protested against him, he was secretly moved into Rochester, which was against the law as he was a sexual offender and the community had the right to know if he were to move amongst them. But there's other reports that the authorities were told he had moved into the area, but they didn't provide details of why he went to prison. And it was less than a year before he would go on to rape and strangle Dotsy Blackburn on March the 18th, 1988, as I told you about before. Now, he at this time had his third wife and a side chick. I mean, what the fuck? Hi, I rape and kill little kids. Do you want to go out with me? I mean, what is wrong with people? So he has a wife, he has a girlfriend, and he borrows his girlfriend's car to prowl the street looking prowl the streets looking for sex. He becomes well known to the women on the street. He's harmless. He doesn't tell them his real name either. So when some of these women go missing, no one suspects it's him. And as the media gets hold of this story, no one else suspects it him. it's him either. The authorities haven't even been informed that he's living in the area. Well, they may have been informed, but they don't know he's a sexual murdering offender. He just goes to work every night at his job at some cheese factory and no one suspects a thing. But after killing Dotsy Blackburn, Anna Stephan, Dorothy Keeler and Patty Eyes, his murderous ways become a whole lot darker. When 30-year-old June Stott went missing on October the 23rd, her body would be found exactly a month later, face down at Turning Point Park, just near the banks of the Genesee River. When her body was turned over, she'd been cut from her neck down to her groin. June didn't work on the streets. In fact, her sister said she was slow and she attended a special school until she dropped out at 16. She moved in with her mum and would listen to Anne Murray while doing jigsaw puzzles. She loved to write and wanted to learn how to drive. When her mum died, she moved back to Rochester. She ended up living with a retired county parks worker. She didn't speak to anyone and never went out at night. And when she did go out, she carried a knife. Now, it looks like Shawcross saw her on the street and from there something happened. Like maybe he tried to have his way with her and she pulled the knife so he strangled her. What it did look like was that she was murdered first and then he returned to do this mutilation. Or he murdered her and dumped her body then went back later to move her and then he mutilated her. But the week before June's body was found, two other bodies were found on November the 15th. 22-year-old Francis, or Franny Brown, who went missing on November the 11th, 1989, and 30-year-old Kimberly Logan, who went missing on November the 15th. On top of that, 22-year-old Marie Welch had been missing since November the 5th. Now, police were getting agitated. They'd already called in the FBI to help out to do the profiling thing and everything else they do, but the bodies were piling up. What they knew was that someone was killing women who worked on the street. He probably lived close by and he was the type that women felt comfortable with getting into his car. Now, from what I've read, Shawcross would sit in the Dunkin' Donuts and listen to the conversation the cops would be having about the case. 
Now, he knew they were watching the streets and Shawcross even mentions how he was once sitting on a step with shiny shoes, as police wear, and an undercover cop sat with him, thinking he was an undercover cop as well because of his shiny cop shoes. And this guy pointed out all the decoy women and decoy undercover cops. Now, I really don't believe anything about that story, but I do believe he was careful when he picked up women. As I said before, he told the women just a fake name and probably several fake names. He used his girlfriend's car and that if that plate was taken by the cops, it would be registered to an older woman. So he was able to keep a low profile. And from what I gather, he was buying sex very often. He only killed when something ticked him off. So back to 22-year-old Frances or Franny Brown. Now, she was brought up by her mother, her aunt and her grandmother, so her upbringing wasn't exactly stable. She was a happy-go-lucky girl and had a four-year-old girl herself, which her auntie and her auntie's boyfriend were raising as their own. Police considered her a prostitute, but she had no convictions for it. However, her arms were bruised with needle marks and she did hang out on the street. Her body was found near Seth Green Drive on the east bank of the Genesee River and she'd been strangled. 30-year-old Kimberly Logan, whose body was found the same day as Franny's, was what police called a public relations nightmare. Kimberly lived at 411 Meag Street and worked on the corner of Meag Street and Munro Avenue. Now, this was right in amongst the general public, which started to get said general public worried that maybe they might become the victim of this serial killer that's roaming the town. Now, Kimberly was last seen by a boyfriend at 2.30am, was warned to be careful by a cop at 2.50am, and her body was found behind a house at 3.20 Meag Street nine hours later. She was a simple girl who had many tragedies growing up, Her brother hung himself on her high school graduation day in 1976. She battled cocaine addiction and walked the streets for money even though her friends begged her to not do it. She had convictions for her choice of work and often police would pick her up, take her downtown and call her family to come and get her. At this stage, police had interviewed 50 suspects without any luck, if only they knew about the child-killing rapists living amongst them. Then on the 27th of November, 29-year-old Elizabeth, or Liz Gibson, who'd been missing for two days, was found in woods off Berg Street, Ontario, New York, east of Rochester. She was a wife and a mother, but had a habit and needed to pay for it. She had convictions for larceny, writing bad checks and for walking the streets. She missed her latest court date where the judge had two handwritten letters in her file. The first dated the 14th of August and it said, I'm currently in Monroe County Jail with a bail of $1,100. And it went on with a plea for a possible release on my own or even a bail reduction because my husband and I have gotten back together and are trying to make our marriage work. Now, the second letter dated the 31st of August said, and this was directed to the judge, thank you for giving me this chance in the drug rehab. I really wanted to be a wife and mother again. My children cry for me all the time. Please, your honour, 
give me another chance. Now the judge, when he read the letters out, he said, I was filled with sadness and a little despair. Then on December 31st, police find boots and social security ID of 20-year-old Felicia Stevens, who'd been missing for two days. They found it on the west side of Sweden Walker Road near Northampton Park. Her body would be found just four days later off Colby Street near the park. The police were sure that the killer was dumping bodies and going back to visit them and perform mutilations on them. Then police got a lucky break. While doing helicopter surveillance around the Northampton Park area on January the 3rd, 1990, they saw a car stopped on the side of the road. Now, as they circled around to check out why this car was parked there, they spotted the body of 33-year-old June Sierra, who'd been missing since December the 17th. Now, she was frozen and her body placed just under a bridge out of sight of anyone who would be, say, driving by. They then decided to follow this car as it drove off. It drove to a nursing home and police questioned the driver, Arthur Shawcross. The next day they arrested him and charged him initially with the killing of eight women. On the 5th of January, the bodies of 22-year-old Marie Welsh and 32-year-old Darlene Trippy would also be found. Now, Shawcross didn't take long to confess and he told them that he killed 59-year-old Dorothy Keeler, a victim the police hadn't yet linked to the other killings. In fact, Dorothy had lived with Shawcross and his wife and he said he killed her because she was selling off his stuff from the house. Now, I won't get into why Shawcross murdered all the other women, mainly because we only have his version of the events, and I really don't believe anything he says. He says some tried to steal his wallet while having sex, or they were too loud, and so he killed them. We'll never know the truth. When he did do a television interview, he was okay with talking about the 12 women he killed in Rochester, but he plainly refused to talk about the two kids he killed in Watertown. It's like he could justify in his own mind why he killed the women when he got out of prison. They'd done something to trigger him. But he knew he could never justify raping and killing 10-year-old Jack Owen Blake and 8-year-old Karen Ann Hill. Now, Shawcross would be charged with murder and he tried the insanity plea, but it didn't wash with the jury who found him guilty on all counts and he was sentenced to 250 years for 11 of the murders or 10 of the murders. I'm not sure if one of the others wasn't included. And they were all the murders in Monroe County. A few months later, Shawcross was taken to Wayne County to be tried for Elizabeth Gibson's murder. Now, rather than claim insanity this time, he just pleaded guilty and was given a life sentence. Now, if they'd only just convicted him in 1972 of two counts of murder instead of giving him a plea deal, which saw him back on the streets 15 years later, I mean, he did rape and kill two little kids, and it took him less than a year to start killing again once he got out, killing at least 12 more women. And guess what? Get the rage ready, he got to marry his longtime sweetheart, Clara Neal, and received conjugal visits in prison in 1997. They got married in the prison's visiting room. I mean, <laughs> this is amazing. This is what she said. It was nice and all. It took 10 years to make the grade, but I finally made it. I mean, make the grade for what? Make the grade for what, Clara? To marry this raping, killing, pedophilic 
piece of shit. And it was Clara's car he used to pick up the women and murder them. When, when she was his girlfriend, side chick, whatever you want to call her, while married to his third wife. Now, they got to marry Clara because they thought it was proper to wait for his wife to die until Clara could make the grade. I mean, what the fucking fuck? Then, there's this other crazy woman. She finds out she's the illegitimate daughter of Shawcross. She sends him letters and hangs out with him in prison vi- on prison visits and even introduces her daughters to him. Now, there's pictures of him hugging her and her daughter in front of the fake lake scenes they use in prisons to take photos. What is wrong with these people? He didn't steal a car or some cash and was inside. He'd raped and killed two little kids, got a very light sentence, as soon, and as soon as he got out, he started raping and killing women, at least 12. Is there something wrong with your heads, people? Now, Arthur Shawcross died in prison on November the 10th, 2008, age 63. So, Islanders, I hope you got the rage like I did on this one. I, absolutely amazing story. Again, how someone can be let out on a light sentence and go on to escalate their crimes. Now, I'd like to thank all my past and present patrons for their support of the show. It really does help me out with all the bills being commercial free. If you want to give a dollar a month, go to patreon.com forward slash Island and join the gang. Or if you just want to shout me a beer, you can donate to paypal.me forward slash Island. Go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream every episode free, download it, whatever you want, if you don't want to use iTunes or a pod player. I have links to merch, social media there as well. You can email if you want to get in touch. Well, that's about it. I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Boom, fuck a lunga. Boom, fuck a lunga.